All right, everybody, welcome to Faithful Dialogues. My name is Ryan, and you can find my personal stuff online at As It Is Written. And I have my co host over here who's going to be asking me all the good questions this week. We have Austin. Hello, my name is Austin. I'm co founder of Apostles Attic, and you can find our stuff at apostlesattic.com. The website is actually set up now, so go ahead and give it a give it a look, apostlesattic.com. And all right, Ryan, are you ready to get started? Yeah, you guys should all head on over there and check out his merch. They got some pretty cool shirts and sweaters for you to check out. So I'm ready for your questions there, Austin. I think this is going to be a good episode this week. Me too, me too. All right, let's go ahead and get started. So <clears throat> I wanted the message or kind of title of this to be iron sharpens iron so basically where does that phrase come from and what was the context of iron sharpens iron yeah that's a great question so we're gonna head on over to our website here uh so we are looking at um proverbs 27 so proverbs is a book in the old testament that deals with a bunch of really wise sayings from a man named King Solomon, uh, for the most part. I think there's some Proverbs from a few other... No, he wrote the whole thing. So there's some Psalms from other people than King David, but uh, in Proverbs, the entire book was written by King Solomon. And so uh, the first king of Israel was King Saul, S-A-U-L. Uh, he eventually gets deposed and... King David ends up taking over, uh, and King David is the promised king that uh, had been uh, that that God had ordained to take over and and rule his kingdom. Um, where Saul wasn't quite that guy; he was a guy that the Israelite people had asked for, and so they suffered under his reign. But now King David comes in; he's great, and he has a son named King Solomon. And so King Solomon is regarded as one of the wisest people to have ever lived. Uh, when he was asked by God what he wanted, instead of asking for gold or horses or women, what he said is he wanted wisdom. And so uh, Solomon ends up being a very wise king, and so he writes a book of Proverbs. And so these are just short little uh, sayings that are kind of on their own. They don't necessarily flow together as part of a story or you know a chapter isn't there isn't anything that makes a chapter of proverbs into like a, a whole and so we see in proverbs chapter uh what is this 27 we see proverbs chapter 27 and verse 17 it just says as iron sharpens iron so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend and so what that is saying is that when you're sharpening a sword uh, what you're going to do is you're, you, the only way to sharpen a sword is to find something equally as, as hard as it and to use that to sharpen um, to sharpen it, right? And so what we need to do, what this is saying is that um, as, as people, we as, and now brothers in Christ, so he was talking to Jews, but this is now equally applicable to us uh, Gentiles. Um, what we're what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to find friends and we are supposed to uh, talk with each other and dialogue with each other and get into arguments with each other so that we can figure out what the truth is and figure out how, uh, you know, how we are supposed to be 
properly worshiping God and living our lives and all the other things that are important in our, uh, you know, in, in our walk with God. What um, translation was that? So that is the NKJV. Would you like to see it in a different translation? Can you see it in King James? Yeah, we can go to straight King James. I want to hyper-focus in on that word countenance there. Okay. Uh, yeah, it just says, Iron sharpeth iron, so a man sharpeth the countenance of his friend. Let's look at a, a bit... Uh, can we look at like the Greek in there? Can we actually like get really, really... Yeah, we can go there? to an interlinear. So, uh, let's see here. Uh, so, what I'm doing right now is I'm looking up what is called an interlinear Bible. So, what that does, and unfortunately... Uh, actually, can you can you see this at all, Austin? I can. Uh, can uh, I, I would actually recommend um, using Blue Letter Bible, but if you're not familiar with it, it can be, can be weird um, navigating it. But I, whatever. Yeah, I just pulled up the first thing that came up, so... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Blue Letter Bible is amazing. I highly recommend everybody check it out. Um, so what you'll see in this translation of the Bible is it's got the Hebrew and it's got, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Romanized letters for the Hebrew word, but then it's also got the English words below it. And so this is called an interlinear translation. They have them for the Hebrew Old Testament as well as for the Greek New Testament. And so, so why are you using that, Ryan? Uh, and so what this does is it allows us to essentially be able to read the original Hebrew that was written down and that we have as part of the translation uh, uh, that, that was part of the original text. And so we can see what that word meant uh, uh, individually. And so sometimes what some translations will do is they'll, they'll take multiple different Hebrew words and use that to make like a sentence. Um, with this, you're just seeing directly the Hebrew word and then what that literally translates to. And so it, it can kind of help um, figure out what a verse actually meant in the original language. And so Hebrew is written from right to, uh, yeah, from right to left. So we start here over on the right um, side, I believe. Oh, no, you know what? They, they, uh, they made it for us. Uh, <laughs> For us English speakers. Um, and so Proverbs 27, it opens up in verse 1 here. With a day may bring forth what you do not know, not for tomorrow. Oh, okay, it is going from from right to left. Uh, so we'll go down here to verse 17, where that um, saying pops up. And it says here on the right, as iron sharpens. So as iron, iron sharpens so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend and so it kind of sounds a little bit weird and the reason for that is the grammar in hebrew is completely different than grammar in english and so instead of saying as iron sharpens in the original hebrew it says as iron and then it says another iron um and the reason for that is just that's the way that they speak and so their language is just set up such that you say the first noun, and then the second noun, and then the verbs and stuff about them, uh, which can make it a little bit difficult for us to to read as modern English speakers, but uh, that's just the way that it is. So 
What it says here is, as iron iron sharpens, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And so, uh, yeah, the word so countenance So what is that here, word? Count yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to look that up. We can look that up over here. It's you. How does that work with the interlinear Bible? Do you like so? If you if I saw that word countenance, what am, what are you about to do that would help me understand that word better? Six four four zero looks like there's like a code for that word. Yeah. So that uh, is a Strong's Concordance reference. Uh, so it's helping you find the word in a book called the Strong's Concordance. Um. What is that? What is a Strong's Concordance? So uh, it's uh, it is something that helps you to understand the Bible. So it it's got a lot of uh, different references and different things that will help you to read the Bible and understand what the words mean and and all the other kind all that other kind of stuff. Um, so Strong's Hebrew six thousand four hundred and forty. Uh, number one meaning of this Greek or this Hebrew word. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that. Does it have? Uh, it's like pay uh, N Ed. Yeah, I don't know. Is it left to right or right to left? I can't. I don't know if it's trying to do this for <laughs> English speakers. It's really weird because they're trying to help yeah. us out, but it's like making it hard. Yeah, I'd have to know specifically what they were trying to do. So I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that word. But it looks like it's P E N E. I don't know. Um, N A. And so it'll give you over here some occurrences. So uh, what we see is that. This word shows up in different places in the Old Testament. The first place that it shows up is in Genesis 1-2. Um, and so it claim so this word uh that is being used for countenance uh in this in this Bible verse in Genesis 1-2 means the surface. Okay. Um and so uh you'll see, yeah, in Genesis 1-20, it says it, this word also means in the open. Okay. Um, it can mean in Genesis 129 that is on the surface. So basically what it's saying, this word has the, uh, the meaning is, it looks like of just the, the first thing that you see, you know, out from the face, the face, uh, the surface. Um, and so, the so proverb we... almost seems to me like it's saying, um, that you should be in fellowship to cheer each other up almost like the countenance is like your face or like i don't know like the surface so it's weird when you look at that word in that in that context you know iron sharpens iron so a man sharpens the surface of his friend do you know what i mean so it's like it's that one's really interesting for me what it's always been taught to me as is it's like um us debating and talking to each other uh to strengthen our faith that's how it's always been taught to me that's not to say that that's the exact meaning behind it. Um, that could just be one meaning behind it or a slightly wrong meaning behind it. But that's that's yeah. my understanding is that basically what we're doing right now is ironing, sharpening iron, where you're asking me these questions. Uh, you know, I have to come up with an answer to them, and that kind of changes your thoughts and beliefs potentially yeah. on on the Bible. And so... I believe that what we're doing in this podcast is actually sharpening is iron sharpening iron. Um, and so just discussing with yeah. people going out and searching for the truth and asking other people around you that are equally yoked with you. So that's, that's the other thing is it's not that the iron That's another is, thing. Yeah. What does that, what does that mean? Equally yoked. Okay. So what is a uh, yolk? <laughs> it, it's not talking about the yellow part of an egg. 
uh, but that is uh, what the word commonly means today, but a yoke to a an ancient Israelite or to anybody up until the year 1930 <laughs> is a device that you put onto a pair of oxen or pair of beasts of burden. And or actually, it doesn't have to be a pair. It can be a oh, single okay. beast. So I, I kind of so what I think I'm gathering there is like if we're holding up an object, we're both holding the weight up, right? Something like that. Yes. So a yoke is a way of transferring the weight of a load over to a beast of burden. Uh, ah, I see. Like okay. a like a cart. Okay. So the way that you would connect in, in ancient Israel, the way that you would connect a uh, an animal to a uh, to something that's to a plow or to a cart would potentially use a yoke um, and so it's talking when when it says that uh, you know we're supposed to you know, we're not we're, we're not supposed to be unequally yoked it what it's saying is that if you have two animals that are both working side by side and one of them is way bigger and stronger than the other one that's going to cause problems for the cart, right? So if the one on the left is bigger and stronger, it's going to pull harder and that's going to push the cart to go more to the right or, you know, whatever the uh the outcome would be. Does that make sense? And so we're supposed to be equally yoked with the people in our lives. So we're not supposed to go out and um, you know, do business as like business partners with people that we're not equally yoked with, though it is commonly referred to as a in a marriage context but it actually the the verse itself uh, speaks more of just general context so let's look at it kind of like first. saying don't let somebody do most of the work for you if you're going to be in a business partnership like don't let or like in a relationship or a business partnership or even a friendship if you're doing something together with somebody you should be doing the same thing as the other person, as the Christian, in the in like, I don't know how to I don't know how to put that, but but yeah, like make sure you're doing as much as other people, or uh, like let's let's know. read what the what the verse says. So I think that's that's really important that we stick to the uh, the text, and I know that you agree with that. Um, so we'll go over the the equally yoked verse comes from Second Corinthians six fourteen. And what it says here is, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So how so, do you, how do you, all right, I'm actually going to derail your train of thought. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, no, 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 please ask the question. How do you, how do you balance that with, like, you're the salt of the earth and we're supposed to be called to be in the earth, in the world so that we're also a light in the world and we're salt of the earth. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's so it's like, I, I don't, help me with that. <laughs> yeah. So, um. Basically, what it's saying here is the way that I would merge those two different lines of thought together is we're supposed to be in the world and we're supposed to be a lighthouse that's that's beaconing the world to come towards Jesus Christ and, and find salvation. Um, but we're not supposed to be tied to the world. OK, 
And so it, it's, a, it's a fine balance. It's a balance that we have to, as, as Christians, make where we try not to enter into business agreements and business arrangements with people that aren't Christians. We, we try not to be unequally yoked with other people. So that's really important for marriage. That's why it comes up there so frequently. But as you saw in this, uh, in, in this paragraph, it doesn't ever say anything specifically about marriage. It just says in general. So your friends, um, who you do business with, those types types of people you're not supposed to be unequally yoked with and 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 that's because uh like it says for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness so how how can i as a christian enter into a a good faith agreement with someone who doesn't have the same basic principles as me does that make sense is it is it kind of saying just like do business with other believers or not or like like I don't even know how to put that. Like, like, of course, we're going to have to go buy and sell things from, from unbelievers, but one of the things that, that I've been convicted of, having gone through the process of, of you know, making businesses with people that I'm not equally yoked with, it, it just leads to issues when you're not both on the same page on stuff. So with, with what we're doing here with Faithful Dialogues, if, if God blesses us and, and we're so lucky, I would love for this to be a business that I do with you. Um, I couldn't do this with someone that isn't a Christian who doesn't have the same faith and beliefs as me because we're not going to be going towards the same direction. And and there's just going to be issues where, like, I'm going to be truthful and, and try to say, you know, you know, try to do the right thing based on what uh, what is taught in the Bible. And the other person, they might be a liar, a cheat, and a steal. And that ju- it just it's very difficult for a Christian to be in that situation. Now, once you're in that situation, there's situation, there's certain things that you're supposed to do as a Christian to, to maintain that that in a proper way, but you just shouldn't have got in that situation to begin with is what this verse is saying. Okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Sorry. No, Um, you're good. Um, so, I think I derailed you twice off our original point. <laughs> yeah, um, so where the, were we? the original point was iron sharpening iron. Um, and uh, that also kind of ties in with the equally yoked stuff. And so basically what, what, the, what the Bible is saying is not that we need to go off and live in a monastery on a hill completely isolated, but that we do need to be wary of the way that the world can creep in and can take over our thoughts and actions and desires and point them towards something other than God. And so that's, that's what I think is ultimately the, the message of these verses is make sure the people that you're around are sharpening you for the right job, right? Uh, if, if what, what it says in, in Proverbs uh, uh, 27, 17, uh, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend, right? And so then we need to go look at the equally yoked verse in second Corinthians six fourteen, and where it says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so these two things together, well, I shouldn't be sharpening my iron with someone who isn't a friend. And a, as a Christian, someone who is my friend should be someone who is another Christian. And so that way, when we're, when we're bouncing ideas off of each other, we're doing so. And we're both pointed towards the, the right, um, the right thing and it's not a and it's not a missionary work for me to be defending my faith it's a it's a uh 
It's something where we're both working together for the same purpose. Okay. So that's that's all I got on that. If you wanted to move on, or if you have any other uh, questions there. No, I mean the 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 follow up questions are going to be surrounding this, but I'm glad you covered that in in the way that you did. Okay. Perfect. All right. So, um, let's talk about. A particular word, it's heresy. Um, what does the word heresy mean? Yeah, okay, so let's head on over. We're still on the uh, web page here. So heresy, is, uh, I just looked it up on Google, so I don't know if they've changed this in the last five minutes or not, which they might have. <laughs> but uh, heresy it means the belief or opinion contrary to orthodox religious, especially Christian doctrine. What is uh, orthodox? Yes, so, um, basically, heresy is anything that is against God's will. And uh, specifically, when, you, when it says the word orthodox, it just means standard. So, what is the standard religious belief? Um, so, orthodox sounds like it's, it's a big thing, because there's an orthodox church and, and those sorts of things, but it just means what is the basics of the belief. So, uh... Christian orthodoxy would be that, you know, uh, God is triune, they're, the Trinity, there's three, there's three persons, one God, that'd be part of orthodoxy, uh, Jesus Christ dying and resurrecting to save us from the consequences of our sin would be orthodox. Like foundational stuff? Yeah, it's, it, it's you know, what, what do you believe? That's your orthodoxy. Um, okay. And so heresy is going against that that standard okay so god set up a standard in the bible uh her heresy would be going against that standard set up in the bible okay it almost seems along the lines of sin in general yeah uh sorry what do you uh yes it, it basically is sin in general um okay. but I, I guess a, a heresy Generally, when you're talking about it, would be more specifically like something that someone's declaring. It's almost more like something someone's declaring. So, like, you can believe heresies, and that's a problem between you and God. But when you hear people talk about heresy, and when you hear the word heresy, it's usually in conjunction with something that someone has done or is going to do. Does that make sense? So, you want to... Okay, so I had, a, I had a look up a Mike Winger video on this. All right. So, I thought... Um, so I didn't understand the difference between one flesh and a marriage. And I thought that the two were the same mm -hmm. as in if you were a one flesh, you were married before God, but that's really not the case. And it took me like watching through a Mike Winger video to like understand how he kind of walked me through that kind of thought process. But I kind of would think if, like, I went around telling other people, like, yeah, if, you know, you're one flesh with somebody, you're also married, that would be, like, that, you're, like, that's heresy. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you know, something like that? Is that kind of along that line? It it could be. Um, I wouldn't necessarily... It, it, it could be. It, that, that I don't know if that's necessarily the, the best example of heresy. Uh, the best example. What would be a better? So, like, yeah. a, a good example of heresy would be saying that, um, you know, Jesus Christ never existed. That would be a heretical statement. 
Okay. Okay. Obviously not one that I believe. I, I believe in King Jesus and submit my life to him. But if I were to come out and say, I don't believe that anymore, that would be a heretical statement. What What if everything is true, but there is no resurrection? Like, that's also a heresy? Yes. So that anything that would take away from the completed work of Jesus Christ would be a, a heresy. No, like, he forgave you of your sins, but there is no afterlife. Well, then what did he forgive me of, right? Like, that's, that's taking yeah, yeah, away from his complete work. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Right? Okay. Like, because I'm still going to die. It's not like I'm going to live forever, but there's no afterlife. So, you know, I am actually just dead and, and gone. And so that would that would be completely heretical if there wasn't a, yeah. a resurrection. Like, does that, so that, yeah. So uh, that's that's heresy. Um, something that definitely needs to be avoided. At different points, you'll see different organizations calling different people heretics. Uh, I'm sure that it would have been in Latin, but I'm sure that uh, the Catholic Church was calling, you know, Martin Luther a heretic, and different Protestants, I'm sure, have called different popes heretics, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, really, what makes you not a heretic? Like, if I was to ask it like that, it, what makes you not a heretic is believing in the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> and submitting your life to him. Uh, and, and, and well, in like that context, but I just mean in general, like how do you make sure you're not a heretic? That That's how. Well, and reading the Bible. So like that, that's why it's so important that we, we search and study scriptures on a daily basis. We're constantly in, in the scriptures and learning from it because that will keep us from the, the weird ideas that we have pop up in our own heads um, I know that I've had some pretty weird ideas at certain points and that those get corrected as I'm reading through uh, scripture faithfully. Um, and then you rebuke yourself. <laughs> it's not even me rebuking me. It's, it's God through the scripture rebuking me, right? Like that's his, yeah. that's his word. So he can use it to rebuke you as you're reading it. That's how powerful God is like. Yeah. So. All right. Um, so basically the prescription to avoid heresy is just to read the Bible, right? That that's that the number that's the number one thing you can do. Like that's the that's the exercise daily of <laughs> of uh what you should do for for the Bible for your Christian faith. Um what I, and then of course obviously going to church, being in fellowship with other solid Christian believers, making friends with them and and spending your time with them is, is, is important as well. Because if you start saying some heretical stuff, I can check you on it. And if I start saying some heretical stuff, you can check me on it. And that's why we're called to go gather as Christians on a regular basis. Um, and that kind of flows within the context of iron sharpening iron. Yeah, exactly. So, and so what you see is that in those verses, it's all pointing towards the same thing. We, we should, be together, we should all fellowship together, we should do so in such a way that we're iron sharpening iron and building each other up, and so they all start to build this picture of what it looks like to be a Christian based on our reading in the in in the Old Testament and the New Testament, so. Okay, um, all right, let's see. So let's start kind of at an earlier point. Um, who is the early church what is the early church 
because I've heard that word kind of like thrown around a lot. And if I'm like a Christian and I'm going back to like a historical kind of, you know, point, like what is the early church? What does that mean? Because then we can talk about like the canonized Bible and all that kind of stuff too. So, yeah. So the earliest church would be what we see in Acts uh, at uh, Pentecost, I would say. Um, the The church was probably born earlier than that. I, I don't know. The, I, I believe that a lot of people would say the church was born at Pentecost. And so the early um, church... What does Pentecost mean? You said that twice now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Pentecost is a uh, festival that the Hebrews celebrate, and it takes place 50 days after Passover. And so this is the day that uh, that what happened in Jerusalem was uh, these tongues came down and fell on like people's heads and then they started tongues? to, yeah, like tongues, t like, uh, like a tongue fell on people's uh. heads and then they were able to speak other languages that other people in Jerusalem could understand and, uh, and, and, and hear the gospel in their own language. And so what happens on Pentecost is there's, I think it's either three or 5,000 people. I think it was, 5,000 people that came to Christ that day. And so that's kind of like the first earliest picture of the church itself uh, is these 5,000 believers plus the apostles plus the hundreds of other people that were Christians uh, that had seen Jesus Christ. So there were 500 uh, witnesses that saw Jesus Christ ascend into heaven. So they would have been Christians, but I don't think that the church officially really exists until Pentecost. And so the earliest Christians are those 5,000, and then what we see happen is they initially stay kind of in Jerusalem, and then historical events start forcing them out of Jerusalem and spreading them out across the Mediterranean and ultimately across the world, where today Christianity is, is one of the largest religions, depending on how you want to count what a Christian is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, so the early church, the earliest church are those those five, six, seven thousand people uh, that ex that were Christians at Pentecost. And then what happens from there is the they spread out, like I said, across the Mediterranean and across the Roman Empire. And what they start to do is set up different churches in different cities. And so the first church is the church in Jerusalem. And so we see okay. that that actually uh, there's good evidence in Acts to say that the church in Jerusalem was... Um, was actually uh, being run by Jesus's brother. Uh, was was it Jude? No, James. 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 Yeah, James. Uh, his other brother Jude also writes a book in the Bible, so I get those confused. <laughs> I didn't know Jude was uh, brother of James. That's interesting. Yes, Jude is a brother of Jesus and James. Um, and so Sorry, that's what I meant. I didn't know yeah, that, um, Jude yeah, was a brother of uh, Jesus because we just said James. So yeah, you're right about that though. <laughs> um. So what we see is that uh, the church in, in Jerusalem exists, and then these other churches start cropping up. And so the other churches that start cropping up, they have, uh, they're started, a lot of them by Paul, but a lot of them are started by other faithful Christians that went out before him or get scattered after him. And so we see different offices start popping up, like bishops. There start to be bishops of different places. There's Why? Really quick, why did the for, uh, office of bishop? Because I know 
um just for people so like why why are there now if a early church is a thing we're all spreading the the word of the gospel of christ like why have offices in the first place like why have a hierarchy so like why 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 did bishop become like an office um, I can't, uh, that's a tough, that's a tough question. I have to so, do some, some research on that. So that but... one, it, it had to do with like, um, basically there was like wives and widows that needed food and they, something about, uh, um... that, that's deacons. Oh, that's you're, deacons. You're thinking oh, of deacons. Oh, okay. Then I'm getting confused with deacons. Yeah, okay. So, so that's another thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. Continue with your. With yeah. Your yeah. Words. So there, so there are these offices and things that, that, that crop up. Okay. And what some people will say is that a bishop of X city or, uh, you know, different preachers and, and teachers throughout the Mediterranean region in this time period around uh, sometime after 33 AD, what, what they are called is they're called church fathers or the early church. And so different people will reference their writings and especially Catholics will use them almost as as equal to the scripture. So they'll say, oh, uh, Aquinas said X, Y, or Z, and that means that he believed what we believe today because we're the true church, right? And so people will use these early church fathers, the early church, as a and the writings that they have, and we found from them as like an extra biblical source that's almost uh, equal in uh, weight to the Bible itself. And so yeah. I found that I find that strange. Like if um, I'm, I'm almost skeptical to read or like go off of anything outside of the Bible. Like once I came to God, it was it was almost like the truth itself is only contained in God's word. And I should be skeptical of everything outside of God's word. Like and that's kind of how I'm operating. And it hasn't really led me astray. I don't think it's going to. Um, that, but that, it, yeah, it's, go ahead. It's funny because I, I kind of have that same line of thinking. Um, you know, there there is a good reason to go and read all of those old writings uh, from different what they call church fathers. And you, you can learn a lot from it. They have a lot to say. I think the issue... They're not, like, they're not dumb people. They're very wise people. They were early Christians, right, at that point. Yeah, well, and, and these are people, some of them, them at the beginning might have had direct contact with Paul or with different, uh, you know, different actual apostles or people that witnessed the events. And so they, they might have a, a better understanding than we do. The, the problem comes in with uh, attempting to translate them and say that, that your translation of the words that they're using means that they believed the same thing that you believe today. The other problem is believing that they're 100% right. There is no reason to believe that they didn't have errors in their theology at that point, even that early on. And so... Are you talking I, about even, like, Paul? No, I am not talking about Paul. Okay. I am not talking about what is in the Scripture. So what is in the Bible is, is inerrant in its original manuscripts. And what we have today are very, very, very good and faithful translations of the Bible that we can have very great confidence says 99.9% .9 the same thing that they were trying to communicate in the original manuscript. But the the issue that, that crops up are with these church, these church leaders don't have that same level of authenticity. So they weren't part of the canon, and so their... Uh, their teachings might have been recorded, but it we might only have a 
record of that teaching from a hundred years later. And so that would be a, a copy of a copy of a copy that might have some errors and, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, what these, these early church fathers are great for is they quote scripture in their sermons and in their letters quite frequently. And so we almost have a complete New Testament just from the quotes of the early church fathers uh, in their sermons that we have uh, available to us today. And so what, uh, what you can do is you can compare the, the manuscripts that we have outside of these early church fathers to what the early church fathers wrote, and we can come up with an idea of what the New Testament actually said. But I don't give their teachings more weight on topics where it, where it seems that they contradict the Bible or that they're giving a weird answer to what the Bible is saying, I'm going to go with what the Bible says and my understanding of what it says, not based on them over what they were saying, because they might is have it basically it commentary on scripture. It's basically commentary. Yeah. The, oh, okay. So it's like a sermon. They, they literally, some of these are, are, are sermons that we have that somebody wrote down to kind of pass around as a letter. Um, some of them are letters that these people wrote to other church fathers and other leaders. Um, it's funny, mm. the, the first letter that we find... So the, the, er, the early church fathers is a term that Catholics will use from somebody that may have existed in 30 AD all the way up to somebody that existed in 800 AD. Okay? Why, um, so why is that significant? Uh, because somebody 800 years later isn't the father of anything <laughs> so really uh, and and obviously really the 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 father of our religion is is god himself there isn't another father of it right like these men weren't the fathers so i try not to call them church fathers but i've messed up on that a few times in this uh podcast but um the 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 early the, the church is fathered by God and by Jesus Christ, right? Like they're the ones that, that created Christianity there. Uh, Jesus Christ is my personal high priest. So I go to him directly with my uh, problems and concerns. So I don't need these other men to exist to tell me what that means, but I'm glad that they did because they spread the gospel and spread, uh, spread everything, you know, spread it so that I'm now a Christian today because of their faith and their faithfulness, now I'm a Christian, of course, but that doesn't mean that every single word that they said is, is inerrant or I should take it with more weight than I would the scripture. Of course you take scripture with the, that, that's, that's perfect and inerrant. So. Okay. Um, oh yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, so the, 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 yeah, yeah, the, the, the church fathers, they, the, the early church leaders, which is what I, we should call them. These early church leaders, they're great people, they're great men, and, and they have a lot of wonderful things to say, but you have to realize that they likely weren't operating on the same thing. Like, the words that they're using might not mean the same things that you think that they mean. And so it's, it's just something to, to take with a grain of salt if you do go in and read some of these early church leaders' writings. They're, they are not inerrant the way that, that scripture is. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and then we covered, we covered that, so, um, uh, um, what were, do you have any examples or any, um, anything to touch on as far as what some of the heresies that formed within the early church were? Because you're saying that these people weren't, um, 
were not in errand, um, meaning po uh, with the possibility of error. So uh, were there any notable examples of times that the early church fathers were wrong about something? Um, you, I, I Again, I'm not studied enough on what they taught specifically to be able to answer that. What I do know is that today you'll hear a lot of Catholics use them to say that all Christians believed in, let's say, like purgatory back then. I don't know oh, okay. specifically. That's just like an example of something they might say. Or re uh, one of the ones that they'll use constantly is infant baptism. They'll take something that uh, an early church leader or even a church leader as late as 800 years later said about infant baptism and they'll go oh this guy said that infant baptism so that's always been a teaching of the church when it it hasn't but yeah so that's another thing like um if there isn't scripture on something as far as baptism goes like we're supposed to be baptized because jesus says to be baptized right but like should we i don't think we should look for any kind of extra meaning or anything that isn't there and kind of as yeah when it comes to like stuff like that because yeah go ahead go ahead so i think the most important thing is to understand what baptism is to understand what communion is to understand what these things are and not try to say that they are some kind of a basically the way that that i understand that the catholic church teaches these things is they're basically magic and obviously they're not magic because they claim they come from God, but essentially what they believe about communion is that somehow the nature of the, the bread and the nature of the wine changes. They, they would say that baptism has a role to play in your salvation. They call that a sacrament. The so baptism is a sacrament that you need to partake of in order to be saved. And so, so in the Christian perspective, do we, all right, then do we need baptism in order to be saved? So the answer is absolutely 100% no, you do not need to be baptized in order to be saved. And we can okay. see that very clearly in the thief on the cross. And so what we see with the thief on the cross is he literally did nothing. He was, he was nailed there with his hands and his feet immobilized. Okay. Same as Jesus Christ. And he literally did nothing but profess his belief in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, okay? And so we can see in that story that that is the only requirement for anyone in order to be saved. So Jesus didn't turn his head and, like, spit on him and claim that that was a baptism, right? <laughs> like, but, but seriously, that would have been necessary from a Catholic perspective for him to be baptized to avoid pur purgatory. Oh, okay. but, but we see that Jesus Christ said that he would be in not purgatory, but in paradise. And he was a heinous, possibly murderer. Okay? So then like, why, if it's not necessary, then like why... Sorry, uh, continue. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Uh, no, 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 that's perfect. I was just about to move into that. And, and so the reason why we need to be baptized, the reason why we need to uh, uh, partake in communion is not because it's going to save us, but because that's what God's commanded. And so these acts are symbolic of what has been done in our lives. So baptism is a, is a symbolic practice that tells and, and alerts everyone, I'm a Christian. This is a, an act that, that, that projects to everyone around you, I'm a Christian. It's a point that you can look back on and be like, I was dunked in the water. At, before that point, I was, I was dead in my sins and I got raised to life. 
with Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful uh, kind of like a ceremony, kind of like a marriage ceremony. Okay. A marriage ceremony. There isn't anything different about the two people after that from a physical perspective. It's purely symbolic. And it's just there to alert the community that you're married. Okay. You didn't need to go through a whole marriage ceremony in front of all your friends and family to be married. Right. That didn't, that, process didn't change anything about you or, 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 or about someone and about their spouse but it symbolically is a as a point we can all look back at and go oh they were unmarried before that now they're married right and so in the same way baptism is a point where we can go oh he was unsaved and now he's saved even though you might have been saved before then but it's it, does, does that make sense and, and, yeah, and so, it does. so nowhere in the bible do we see anyone that doesn't have a, a knowledge and an understanding of what they're doing get baptized it's always they it, it, when in the bible every single time it is someone asking to be baptized or someone who has accepted christ then gets baptized him and they'll say his whole household right so in a couple places it says him and his whole household are baptized the Catholics will use that as an argument to say that, oh, well, in every household, there's an infant. So clearly infants were baptized. And it's just like, look around the room. Uh, how many other people here have infants? <laughs> and it's, you know, nobody has infants in whatever room you're in for the most part. And the, and, and the reality is it's very unlikely that there was an infant in that household that didn't know what was going on that was also baptized. And so they built this whole... Uh, uh, belief system that you need to be baptized in order to be saved and that infants need to be baptized based off of a, a like slight implication in one verse that doesn't even remotely say what they're claiming it says. And so that's, that's why it's so important to be in your Bible, to be reading your Bible and not just take what your priest has to say as the gospel truth, because human beings might be wrong. And this is one of those instances where some group of human beings got this practice wrong. And then because of the fact that the rest of their congregation wasn't checking them and reading the scriptures, that festered into a, what I would say is now a heretical belief that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Okay. And so why? <sighs> All right. So like, why? If I'm really seeking God and I love, you know, the Lord and I'm trying to be right in his eyes and truly, you know, follow God in that way, um, I, what, what really, because this all boils down to like wrong beliefs and stuff like that, right? So what am I, what is, is it just the earlier statement, just read the Bible and, and is that kind of your prescription there is just continue to be in God's word so you know what is right and what's wrong? Uh, on how to avoid heresies and avoid false practices and beliefs? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's number one. But, but number two is do not put too much faith into people that are human beings, into human beings, okay? Yeah. So the only the only thing that we have that is infallible is scripture. And so... That you can put your faith and trust in, but you can't put your faith and trust in your pastor. He might be some horrible creep pedophile for all you know, okay? But that doesn't affect my faith, right? Hot take. The, the, the fact that 
the fact that there is a a pastor or a priest or even if it was my own pastor that got caught up in some horrible sin that doesn't affect me because my faith isn't based on them my faith is not based on their faithfulness so what happens when we find a pastor that um okay so unfortunately there have been people so okay so somebody says christianity xyz because this pastor when he passed away we find out that he's actually not living by god's word so then i'm not going to be a christian because uh, you know what i mean like there's uh, there's some that hold the belief that basically christians are actually just like a bunch of hypocrites and they don't really like live out their faith and, and the stuff that they preach and we see that even in these big pastors um that end up passing away and there's some revelations that come through and just stuff like that so i um my, how yeah go ahead. the first thing i'd say to that is we are <laughs> we are hypocrites that uh that that don't practice what we preach every single one of us and the you... fact like <laughs> if anyone is basing is, is looking at christians for pers for perfection they're looking at the wrong place right I, i'm not telling you to look at me i'm a horrible evil sinner okay don't look at me <laughs> for perfection look to christ and so when there is a person who claims to be a christian that that messes up even if they're a pastor that doesn't affect my relationship with Christ. He wasn't my... So that, that's the other thing that's so beautiful about only having one high priest. So in Christianity, there is one mediator between God and man that is the man Christ Jesus. In Hebrews, which I'm actually reading in my daily Bible reading right now, it describes Jesus as our high priest, very specifically in, in a number of different ways. And, and, and that works, like, so just to address, address Catholics... Um, so Jesus has ascended. How can he still be my high priest? Uh, so Jesus is still alive. And, and the only qualification for, for a high priest is to be alive. They don't need to be doing it from a specific place. Okay. Okay. Uh, the other thing is the Bible speaks about um, Jesus being in our hearts. It also talks about us being a temple once we are, are saved. And so Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, yeah. Well, and and so Jesus is in our hearts, and so he's practicing as high priest from there as well, in a certain sense. But the 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 biggest thing is there is nobody that's above me in Christianity. So there may be somebody that has an office that might have some authority over what I can do in a physical building, but ultimately there is not a a person that is in between me and Jesus Christ. And even if a church comes together and kicks somebody out from being able to fellowship with them, that doesn't mean that they're not saved. That means that that church, if that church did it the right way, that person should be fearfully working out their salvation. But just because what is, of... What is that right way? Sorry. Well, kick, uh, kick somebody oh, out. Oh, there, there's a process that's, that's prescribed in the Bible. We can go into that, but it's a whole, it's a whole oh. other thing. Sorry, go ahead and continue. That's okay. Um, so there is a proper way to go about and to to tell somebody that they shouldn't come back and fellowship with you anymore because they're a, a cancer in the church, essentially. They're, they're spreading heresies, that sort of thing. Um, even the church kicking you out from their fellowship isn't, isn't saying that they are going to die in their sin without being saved, right? That's just saying that they went through a process and... and but I guess I'm getting I'm kind of getting away from the point. But 
the the there is no person that is responsible for me on this planet other than myself. I'm not responsible for you. You're not responsible for me. My pastor isn't responsible for me. He he's responsible to teach me and guide me correctly, and he's responsible to do that faithfully and correctly. But he's not responsible for for actions that I take of my own free will, and so I, I don't need any other priests. I don't need anybody else to to validate my my Christianity. And so all of these. Pra- uh, yeah. Really, what I was gonna say is like so like so people uh, not really I don't know about even saying Christians, just people looking from the outside in when they're saying like oh yeah like. You know christianity you guys say all this stuff but then you turn turn around and you find that afterwards like you you had like a bunch of secret stuff that you didn't want people to know about you're like effectively living a double life right yeah so like um basically what you're saying is what, what are you saying in response to that in that in that in that phrase well what i, what I, I put it that way what i what i'm saying is that that that's horrible that's evil and wrong and should be condemned completely and uh, you know if if the authorities if the person hadn't passed away and this came to light that they were doing something illegal they need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law but that there is grace for them even even the worst horrible pedophiles the worst possible things you could you could ever do there is grace even for that person if they come and repent of their of their sins but that doesn't mean that you're gonna be like so you're still going to be in the court of law dealt with in the way that the public, you know, yes. the, the government and the state and the federal laws apply to you still. But if right before death row, right before they do some, you know, before you're, you know, put to death because, uh, you know, you murdered 10 people and some kind of killing spree. But you're, and somebody goes and tells you about Christ right before you die. And you're like, you know what? I did do something wrong. Um, I, I really messed up. Uh, I want to be in, I want to go to heaven with, with God. And I, I do believe that Christ died for my sins. And like you, you put your faith in Christ in that way. You're saying like, um, it, it's still possible for those people. Yes, it is. Now that person probably shouldn't ever be a pastor again. Right. I don't think, I think that there are certain things that would disqualify someone from taking positions of leadership over other people. Okay. I, I'm not the one to make that decision on any anybody specifically, but I would argue that that would be a good reason why they shouldn't ever lead a church again, even if they repent and 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 they come back to Christ, right? That doesn't mean that we should trust them and that we should treat them like it never happened, right? Like be in the congregation, like as a as just coming to Sunday services and stuff like that, or yeah. attending ministries and stuff like that. Yeah, but giving them a, a place of leadership or, or heaven forbid, putting them in a in a place see, where okay. where they could victimize more people, right? Like you still have to understand that that's a problem the person's dealing with. So they need to be effectively fed instead of trying to feed other people, right? They they need to yeah. learn stuff because they're they're well, astray somewhere. Well, and there there's other ways they might be able to serve, right? They could they could do things you know, like they could be a janitor in the church or like there's just some form of labor or your time, something, you know? Yeah. But not in a, in a place of leadership because they've clearly shown that they're not capable of that responsibility. And so when I see these, so what, what the problem that I would have and the difference that I would say between the way that the Catholics have dealt with their 
uh, uh, scandals with with different priests and the problems that they've had versus the way a like evangelical church deals with it are, are completely different. So that the big difference between an evangelical church and the Catholic church is an evangelical church. That's just it for the most part. There's isn't some other place that they can go to run away and hide and you can kind of shuffle them around to keep them in the clergy. Oh, hey, Crazed Menace. Thank you for joining us. Crazed Menace, um, how's it going? <laughs> so we just got a, uh, I think a follow. So that was pretty cool. Uh, sorry, I don't, I don't think you can hear it, but there was a whole big... <laughs> no, I did. I <laughs> nice. actually heard it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, sorry, what, <laughs> what was I saying before that? Uh, um, I completely lost my train of thought. Something about uh, oh yeah yeah so the the difference in the way that like so so an evangelical church they find out that there is a pastor that's a pedophile right he should immediately be fired and should be you know out in the streets looking for a, a job if he repents of his sin after he's been properly tried and ever gone through the proper punishments if he wants to come back to church he should be able to the difference between that scenario and the Catholic Church is the Catholic Church would take these pedophile priests that are having these issues, they would take them from the United States and they'll just move them to Italy, or they'll take them from the United States and move them to some other country in Africa or, or you know, Latin America, where they can basically escape from the, the just penalties and punishments of their crimes, right? So there's going to be issues in every single organization. There's pedophiles in public schools. There's pedophiles all over the place. Okay, so I'm not saying that the Catholic Church is is evil and, and, and wrong just because they have those kinds of people in their organization. But you have to look at what they do with those people once they've been accused and how they deal with that afterwards. And uh, the, the Catholic Church in the this century, or sorry, last century, has just been abysmal in their in, in the way that they've gone about dealing with these problems because so a lot you're of saying time... some crazy thing that if we find some revelation from some pastor completely kick, kick that guy out and let the law take care the law take its course is what you're kind of saying absolutely uh, you know if if they're a pedophile and they're hurting children my belief is that should be a death sentence and they should be put to death okay i couldn't more strongly condemn someone that is hurting and 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 you know destroying these little children's lives because that's what it is is it these sorts of things destroy somebody's life and it's very difficult to to come back from and so for me the 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 biggest the other issue that the catholic church has is they claim that these people that are committing these problems are are vicars of christ they believe that they are christ on this earth and so these pedophiles that they're protecting they also claim are capable of bringing Christ's body and blood down in the mass and becoming Christ in the mass themselves as well. And so this person that's doing that and is capable of doing that is also molesting little children. And so that's the issue that you come into with the Catholic Church is they've put so much power and so much... There's a difference between the laity that you are and the, the priest that the priest is there's such a difference. What does that word laity mean? Laity just means a normal person. Uh, so like someone okay. who's not a priest. And so they, they've put such a, a high value on those people that when they commit those things, they, they have to protect them or that would devalue the Catholic faith. Whereas I put no value on a human being greater than, than anybody, any other human being, right? My pastor isn't greater than me 
in his faith. He isn't closer to God necessarily. Um, and so if he were to do that, I want him to go and face the fullest punishments. So that's, I think that's kind of the, that's the uh, one way that it would be the proper way to go about it. And one way that would be the wrong way to go about it. And there's evangelical churches that try to cover stuff up and, and, and do horribly evil things as well. I think anybody involved in the cover up of any of that kind of stuff should be tried and, and put in jail for a long, long time, if not executed themselves. Cause I think covering up pedophiles is, is almost just as bad as the actual act itself because you're perpetuating that and because of I your cover-up... I was just going to say you're going to let other people get victimized because you're not stopping the cycle of abuse and stuff like that, yeah. And, and so ultimately, what Christianity teaches is that we're all horrible sinners. It teaches that that does not stop just because we start calling ourselves a Christian and that we need to work in ourselves with... Not we need to work. We need to allow God to work in us to change us of those behaviors and of those sins and that we'll never get that perfect here on this earth and and we just need to rest in the the security that Jesus Christ is going to save us and so yeah, another yeah. human being doesn't affect any part of that for me no no part of that uh, does another human being now will it keep people from being saved possibly but if that person was really one of God's sheep they'd hear his voice somewhere else and be able to come to faith despite the fact that there was this pedophile in the church. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, yeah. So that, that for me, I understand why people see that, see Christians being hypocrites and, and think that that's an issue. And I get it from a secular perspective. They, they see us claiming that we're some holier than thou and, and perfect people. Well, they're preaching not to do these things and then they get yeah. caught doing these things. And yeah. And, and, and of course we should be preaching not to sin and we should be working in ourselves to sin as little as we possibly can. Not that that saves us. Okay. Again, when I say the word work in ourselves, I'm not saying that we need to work towards our salvation. What I'm saying is that we need to work to reform our thoughts and acts and desires to to conform that with Christ. Really quick, just um, just to you know, throw the hook out there. What does uh, salvation mean? So, uh, salvation is a really cool word. Uh, it's actually the name of our Savior. So, if you take the word uh, Yeshua, uh, that ultimately ends up in your Bibles translated as Jesus. And that word means salvation, okay? So the name Jesus means salvation. And so when there's a song that says that there's salvation in his name, that's completely true. Um, and what salvation means is it means to be saved. And so uh, it's where we get like save your, it's where we get the word saved in general. It comes from salvation oh, wow. in, in a certain sense. And okay. so... Um, Salvation literally just means to be rescued. So we're dead in our sins. We're, we're uh, not um, doing what we should be doing, and, and we're dead. And then we get saved from that state through the work that Jesus Christ did and, through, and because of our faith. Okay, so if, if Jesus did the work, what do I do? You don't have to do any kind of work. So in order to be saved, you only just have to profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead. And so th those are the only two qualifications to be 
a Christian, you can do that right now. You don't even actually have to say the words. The the profess with your mouth is, is more of a... You can just uh, agree with those things. Yeah, like, there's people who are mute. They can obviously be Christians, even though they can't speak, right? Like, it's not being pedantic like that. It's not being silly and... and it, but, yeah. it's ba but it's basically saying, like, you need to be willing to to profess Christ to your friends and family and the people that are around you and your community, and you also need to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he rose again so that you can have the assurance of eternal life with God. So. All right, so I had the idea of looking up as many different, like, denominations as I could find. Um, if I rapid fire through them at you, could you briefly kind of go through what you believe that they believe? Yeah. And why? Because we're on the topic of heresy and iron sharpens iron. So um, would, would you be uh, interested in that? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's let's go straight for it. So you've already talked about Catholicism. Um, there's so instead of talking about the, th the heresies that they believe, um, why do they believe the heresies that they believe? Okay. Uh, for for Catholics, like yeah. why? Okay, sorry, I didn't know if you were specific or about to start asking me for. You don't have to go into the specific okay. things that they believe that are wrong that we believe. Um, but why do they believe those things that are wrong? So I I would say that the what what in my in my in my understanding, so not even my opinion, my understanding what the Bible teaches. Uh, so the thing that ultimately makes someone not a Christian versus a Christian is belief in works, okay? So do you believe that we need to do work in order to earn our salvation, or do you believe that it was 100% a completely free gift that Jesus Christ gave to us on the cross? So fundamentally, that that is what makes you either a Christian or not a Christian. So if you believe that Jesus Christ's work is complete and that it only takes faith in him to have that assurance of your salvation... That's a Christian. Anybody that believes anything else or adds anything to that is not a Christian. And so my or even subtracts, right? Um, yeah, you could. I don't know how you could really subtract and still say that there. I guess is... it would be all adding because I remember yeah. like the Jews in those times were like, yeah, sure, Jesus, but also circumcision. Like, do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's... so like, I I guess you could take Jesus out technically and say that it's all work, but I'm not really aware of. Uh, not, okay, there's religions that do that, so Buddhism and, uh, you, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other religions outside of Christianity that remove Jesus completely and make it just works-based, but when it's a corruption of Christianity, what they do almost every single time that I've ever seen is they'll add works on top of Jesus Christ's grace, and so that's what okay. we see in, in Catholicism, is they've added works on top of Jesus Christ's grace, and they've said that because you, you need to do these works, you can't be assured of your salvation. So you don't know what works you're going to be doing next week, next month, next year. You don't know if you're going to commit a mortal sin or not, and so you can't be assured of your salvation. So those those are the two, okay. two big things that I would say where the, the Catholics go off the rails. I agree with 99.9% .9 of what the Catholics teach and what they believe where it, where it goes wrong is, is adding works where it goes wrong. Uh, uh, less, less so would be um, in their, 
essentially deification of the Pope. I, I disagree with the weight that they give his statements. His statements don't have any more weight than mine do, in my opinion, and, and based on what the New Testament teaches. Uh, so th those, are, those are the two basic ways. And so you were asking kind of how they came to these beliefs. Yeah, like, why does a Catholic believe um, anything that's outside of the Bible? Like, where are they, why, uh, how am I reforming this? So, yeah, so yeah, like, I, I, yeah, go for it. I, I think I understand. So, you're, basically, how did they come to believe something other than basic Christian sure. beliefs? My understanding, and I'm more than happy to, to see this disproven, but my understanding is that, es that essentially what happened in about 300 AD when uh, Constantine allowed Christianity to start being practiced. So he didn't make it the official state religion. Uh, one of his successors did. But what happened at that point is the religious system of Rome merged with the Christian system in Rome that existed. And so what you see is the, the Pope took on a title called Pontifex Maximus. And that, that sounds like it means something cool. It means bridge builder. And it is a That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool, but it's a pagan title. <laughs> okay. Oh. This, th this was what the high priest of the pagan religious system in Rome called himself before 300 AD. And That's so, not a good look. Yeah. Yes. So basically, what happened was all of these priests that had been worshiping, you know, Zeus and and the whole pantheon of other uh, Roman gods basically just said, yeah, we're Christian now, and took a lot of their practices from their pagan beliefs and kind of started meshing that and merging it with Christian beliefs. And so you see a lot, that, that's where the saints kind of come in, uh, rather than... What it, does that word mean? So a saint just means, uh, is a person who is sanctified, and a... What does sanctified <laughs> mean? It means that you have been saved. So a saint is someone... Ah. Uh, uh, the Catholic Church definition of a saint is different than the, the biblical definition of a saint. The Catholic Church definition of a saint is anyone who is uh, in heaven already. Uh, the biblical definition of a saint is anyone who has been saved. And the difference there is, under Catholicism, you can't know that you're saved until you're in heaven. Okay? And so the Church can't know that you're saved until you're already in heaven. And uh, whereas... Christians believe that I already know that I'm saved, so I am a saint, you are a saint, you will be in heaven someday because of the faith that you have now. Uh, you're, you're muted. So you, you confessed Jesus as Lord, you're still, well, you know, you're still able to get baptized, and you did, you know what I mean? At that point, you know that the Bible teaches you're saved, you know, that's, uh, uh, I think, how that works, right? So you know you're saved before you get baptized. So, oh, interesting. Can you explain that for me? So baptism isn't saving you, okay? No, I know, I know. I, I'm saying, like, I, I placed, I, you know, I, I believe the gospel, you know. Um, I agree with God that my sins are wrong. Um, uh, and then, okay, so, yeah, go for it. Oh, uh, sorry, I, I don't know exactly what, uh, what I was saying before that, but uh, what, uh, what was the original question? Sorry. Um, I, I, I lost it as well. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we'll, we'll just kind of move on. But basically, that, that's, that's what I would say is the difference between uh, Christianity and Catholics, right? And yeah, uh, Crazed Menace is agreeing that 
uh, you are saved before you're baptized, and I completely agree. Um, baptism, again, is just a symbol. It's a symbolic representation of... Uh, so, okay, let me really confuse everybody here. There's actually two baptisms that happen, okay? So there is a baptism that happens the moment that you're saved, and so that's called the bapt... Uh, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something to do, like... The baptism of the Holy Spirit the, with fire. The Spirit, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. It also includes with fire for some reason. I don't know. I, it I must be, be something that, like, you know how, like, the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost and there was, like, flames and something? There must be something inherent with, like, fire. Because, like, you know, I don't know, maybe yeah. you're on fire with God when you first you get converted and stuff like that. I know, I sure was. <laughs> um, And so that that's a baptism and that's an event that happens in heaven i don't know if in heaven's the right term but it is a let's let's call it a spiritual event it is not a physical earthly event that happens and so that baptism happens the moment that you give your life over to jesus christ and you're saved and then what happens is at some point down the line if you're the ethiopian eunuch immediately after the the heavenly baptism happens your physical baptism happens because he wanted to go get baptized immediately but in some people's, in, in some instances, some people wait a few months uh, or, or even a year or never get baptized. But that doesn't mean that they aren't saved. So then touch again on why do it? Uh, we, we do it as a symbol of our beliefs and in our, our, our desire to, to change the way that we live. And so that the rest of the community can know that you're saved. But also it's a, it's a, it's a place that you can look back in, at and remember I was dead in my trespasses before my my spiritual baptism, and so you can look at that as kind of like a a, a symbol of that commitment that you made and of that baptism that happened spiritually. Yeah, he poses a good question. Let's go for it. What happens at the second baptism? What does that even mean? What is the second baptism? Oh, so the second baptism is, is the water baptism. So there's there's the baptism uh, uh, with the spirit uh, and fire. And then the second, the other baptism that not every Christian has, the, the thief on the cross never had a second baptism. What happened, he just, you know, he died. And so the second one would be when you actually physically get dunked in water and brought back up. Uh, some denominations do sprinkling. I, I'm not, again, it's all a symbol anyway, so I'm not going to say that that's it's just not like a, a right real or wrong baptism. Way to do that. Yeah. I would say it's the wrong way. Uh, the first is so crazy. Well, because we the... see people like, uh, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, it's um, okay. I'm just going to reference the Jordan River, but go ahead. Yeah, so there there were people that were getting baptized for repentance uh, by by uh, uh, John the Baptist. That's <laughs> in his name. Um, and so they were doing it, again, as a symbol of their repentance and turning from their sins. They didn't have the... They didn't have Jesus Christ as the reference at that point yet, but that's why they were doing it is because in anticipation of what Jesus Christ was going to do for them. Uh, and so Crazed Menace was saying, what happens at the second baptism and then the first? So the, the first, it, it's not a physical event that happens here on earth. It is a spiritual event that happens uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is essentially coming in and cleansing you of your unrighteousness and that's that's what that baptism is doing and so that one causes happens, you to believe right uh that's that kind of what's happening with the baptism i i would say that that happens after you already believe so you're not okay. baptized okay. into the holy spirit until after you were already saved 
that that is what is saving you in my in my understanding. And again, I would love to you know be corrected on this if I am in, if I am wrong. Um, but that's my understanding is that this this first baptism happens spiritually and it's what actually saves you, and then the water baptism that happens sometime later doesn't actually physically save you. So let me let me look. So up are you saying verse. are you saying when I confess with my mouth? Jesus is Lord at that moment. I'm spiritually baptized. Is that kind of what's going on there? Yes. Okay. Uh, verse. I need a verse. No, that's not it. While we wait, crazed menace or any other viewers, if you have any good questions that are, you know, wholehearted with intention, go ahead and throw them our way. Sorry, I'm looking up the, the Bible verse. You're good. Uh, Just know that my, my okay, camera okay. feed died. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's because You're uh, good. it's a Discord thing. Um, Is it still... Going, yeah, it's back to dead. There we go. Okay. Oh, it's because of the screen I was on. Sorry. So it comes up in Matthew three eleven, and it says John the Baptist said, "I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." And so Jesus Christ mm -hmm. Himself baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire when we accept him uh when we accept him as our savior when we accept that work completed work that he did and so at that point okay. i believe you're immediately baptized uh with the holy spirit and with fire so okay. that's that's my understanding and again the the confusion comes in i believe because the word baptism is used interchangeably for the physical dunking in water part, but also with this baptism of fire and with the Holy Spirit. And so okay. in the rest of the New Testament, you have to look at the specific context of what it's saying to know exactly which one it's talking about. So if it's talking about you being saved by it, it's referring to the Holy Spirit and fire baptism. <clears throat> if it's talking about a physical thing they're about to go do, it's talking about water baptism. That's that's my understanding again. And okay. if, yes, exactly. Always fire before water, crazed menace. That's one hundred percent. Um. All right. Are you ready to move on from? Yeah, yeah. That? So, from, so from Catholics, is there another <laughs> denomination you wanted? To... Oh, there are plenty. <laughs> um. So, do you know? I'm actually ignorant on this one. Do you know? Do you know anything about Eastern Orthodoxy? So there's going to be a lot of these that I don't have full and complete answers for. Um, okay. My understanding of Eastern Orthodoxy is very, very little and small. But the basic understanding that I have and, and the, the, the basic issue that I take with the way that they go about belief would be in their acceptance of mysteries. So they, they claim everything's a mystery and they don't believe that you can really know what that mystery means. And I you just... Mean everything's a mystery. I, I, I don't know. Again, I don't know enough about their actual beliefs to make statements like specifics. 
but that's just my understanding is when I've heard people talk about or Eastern Orthodox and I've heard people who are Eastern Orthodox like priests and stuff talk, they will use the word okay. mystery quite frequently and they will use that as a place to end the conversation. So they'll say, oh, that's a mystery. When they don't know stuff? I, 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 won't, I won't say it's because they don't know it because at this point it's basically their doctrine. So oh, okay. it might have it might have been that somebody didn't know it a thousand years ago, and so they went, "It's a mystery." And now today, a thousand years later, they're still saying it's a mystery, even though does that make sense? Yeah, our, our uh, very traditional Eucharist, Eucharist. Uh, I don't know what the word communion. It would okay. be kind of synonym, synonymous with communion. Do are they? They're not transubstantiation. They don't believe in transubstantiation, do they? Crazed menace. Because I don't um, what, believe one that thing they I do. Would ask is okay. So, are there mysteries today? Do we still not know things? What the, would the, what would qualify as a mystery? Because I know there's uh, my my fiance. Um, there's a certain text where um, it says that we. It's in Revelation that says that we will know the mystery of God, or the mystery of God will be revealed. And so I don't know what that means. Maybe we have some commentary on that. Maybe you kind of know. Um, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, what was the what was there? Uh, what was the specific mystery? Oh, oh, just that. Like, are mist? Are there still mysteries today? Like in modern or you know postmodern times? And if there, um, I know that in Revelations it says that the mystery of God will be revealed, right? Yeah. So, um, there's a Bible verse that says something to the effect of. Uh, it says basically something to the effect of, oh, here it is. Uh, in Proverbs 25, 2, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Okay? And so the, the, the part that I agree with is that God's hidden things. There are absolutely mysteries. And there's some mysteries that we'll never know or find out until we are in heaven right with, with, with Jesus. Okay? Yeah. So I'm not saying that everything can be known. And of course there are mysteries. But what I would say is that their uh, acceptance of these mysteries, their, their acceptance of the fact that they exist, is not what God wants us to do. He wants us to go searching for them. He wants us to go and, and look into the matter, right? And, and the reason I say he wants us is because what, what the Bible says is that we're all kings and priests of God the Father. And so we can read Proverbs 25 too, and when it says it's the glory of kings to do something, we can read that as it's our job to do it. It's, it's something that would be glorious for us to do, okay? Because what uh, Revelation 1-6 says is that we are now a... We are now kings and priests of God the Father. And so it's our job to go and search out to go and search out these mysteries. Maybe not all of them, okay? It's, we're not expected not every Christian is supposed to understand everything, but when we get presented with these mysteries, what we're supposed to do is go and search out the answers to them, not just go, "Oh, that's a mystery. I'm going to leave it at that." That that's the issue that I have. And I I could be wrong in my uh in my understanding of what they what they teach, but they just use that word a lot, and it, it seems to kind of be a scapegoat to get out of actually answering anything from what I've seen. 
Okay. All right, let's move on. Let's see. Um, so in the umbrella of Protestantism, there's a lot. And so I actually kind of, I would, I would keep these short and simple because I, I, yeah. uh, I kind of want to know these two. Um, Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Um, they are generally going to be Calvinists. And so they believe that uh, you are incapable of coming to a saving faith uh, of your own accord, but that God forces you to come to a saving faith. You're going to you're going to have faith in me. Yes. Like like, like that. OK. Uh, there's probably some other. Oh, they the press uh, a presbyter is a um, church governance, a church organization structure. And so. I don't know okay. exactly what their church structure looks like, but the the word Presbyterian means that you're a person who belongs to a presbyter, which is a person that's above you in the church organization. Um, eh, really quick answer: Is it okay to have a hierarchy? Uh, it, it's okay to have a hierarchy in the sense that obviously there needs to be different people that get different stuff done, and there needs to be somebody in charge of making sure that oh, those things some get kind done. of structure. So some kind of a, an, administra an administrational structure needs to exist, but there is nobody that's, a, that's in between me and Jesus Christ. So just because the guy, there's a guy that gets up and speaks to all of us at church every Sunday doesn't mean that he can tell me something is biblical that isn't, right? And, and so there isn't somebody... So, yeah, if that makes, if that makes sense. You're, you're muted. All right, moving right on. Pentecostal. Uh, so Pentecostal, that word obviously comes from the, the day Pentecost. And what they do is they put a huge value on speaking in tongues, generally. And so What uh, would they do to me if I came to a, to a Pentecostal church? What would they start saying about tongues? Um, so, okay, let me, let me re... Let me readjust that. Uh, there are churches that call themselves strictly Pentecostal. The most Pentecostal of those churches put a very high value on speaking in tongues. Uh, my understanding is that there are uh, other churches. Calvary Chapel might, to a certain extent, also be slightly Pentecostal in, in a certain respect, I believe, uh, which is where I go. Um, can you, um, before you continue, can you give us a brief um, info on what speaking in tongues is means? Yeah, so there's two different versions of speaking in tongues. The, the, the one that I believe is biblical and the one that, that I think still exists is the ability to communicate to another human being in a language that you don't know. So that, that's what I would say speaking in tongues means when you read it in the Bible. What these people mean, some of them, again, there's a, a broad spectrum of Pentecostal, and, and, and just because you're labeled a Pentecostal doesn't mean that you believe the most Pentecostally stuff, right? Does that make sense? So, I yeah, just, like, like I, you're, not, you're not thrown in with the lump, I guess. Yeah, so I, I'm going to describe the most extreme version of Pentecostal, which is in order to prove that you're saved you must speak in tongues and tongues doesn't mean Whoa. I'm speaking Chinese to a Chinese guy to try to help him get saved. Tongues means I'm speaking an angelic language 
that no one else can understand except for a specific interpreter potentially. But Is I think that what a lot it biblically means or what they're saying. That's what they're saying. I'm saying that's what they are saying. So a Pentecost, the most Pentecostal of Pentecostal churches will say that that you must be a person who has spoken in tongues in order to know that you're saved, possibly in order to be saved. So I completely disagree with that. Um, but again, there's different levels of Pentecost Pentecostal, and so you'll find churches that are a lot more close to the to like a normal belief that you and I would agree with. You'll find real crazy ones that say that you need to be speaking in tongues in order to believe that you're saved. Uh, I don't know if these are Pentecostal, but there's a very similar um, religious bent where uh, there's these, I think that might've been Baptists, but what they, what they do is to prove that they're saved, they uh, get a snake and put it in with them. And if the snake doesn't bite them, then they're saved. Uh, because there was a story of snakes not biting somebody in the Bible, but it's it's one of those things where it's like a the the heresy that I see from them is that they put too much weight on proving you're saved through this one specific act that I don't think every Christian is called to do. I don't believe every Christian will speak in tongues. I believe those that need to for a certain specific scenario where God wants to work through you, He will use you and He will speak tongues. And you will speak tongues to accomplish a task, but this just random nonsense babbling that nobody understands or really cares about, I don't think is biblical at all. And uh, that's that's the the most so that's Pentecostal to a certain extent. There's other things that they believe, but that's the main. Like if I were to go and and you know uh, uh, be a complete bigot, that's what I would say all Pentecostals believe, right? Um. All right. Uh, what would you say, me and you? Because I, I would say me and you are would I'd I'd put myself in your category, so to speak. What would you say? Uh, closely fits what we are, or so, like yeah, go for it. So, uh, I come from a Baptist tradition, and from an evangelical tradition, and so, uh, Baptists are a specific, uh, uh branch of Christianity that has certain beliefs, namely, the, again, it comes in the name, Baptists believe that you should be baptized as an adult. So they, uh, that's the biggest uh, thing that differentiates them from other denominations. Uh, what if so, I'm like, what if I'm like 15? Are they still wanting you to wait till you're like 18 or like 21 or something like that? Uh, uh, it, again, there's, there's different churches in Baptist, in Baptist traditions that will have different answers for that. One of the Baptist churches that I grew up in, or one of the, maybe it wasn't even a Baptist. So again, there's going to be different answers from different people. The, the most common one you'll probably hear is that they can get baptized when they understand what they're saying. Um, so it's not like a specific age. But, like whenever they're coherent and can have a conversation with you. Yeah. And so if they can explain to you, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ because he came and died to save me from the the consequences of my sins. If a, if a child can say that in their own way, obviously they're not going to use all those specific big words. Right. You're saying but they're, if, they're ready for a Baptist baptism. That That is generally when a Baptist would say that that is acceptable. Though there are some Baptists that say you can't tell they're 11 or tell they're 15 or whatever. They, they put numbers on it. I couldn't speak to the numbers that different churches put on it, but that's, yeah. Where so, would you fall? Like, if you had a church, like, what would you say on 
baptism would be your thing, like if you were the pastor. So if I was the pastor pastor of a church, uh, honestly, it wouldn't even okay. I think that we've got baptism a little bit wrong here in the United States. We see it as something that you have to do in front of the congregation of the church, which uh, there's no problem with that. And it could the, just it, be like between you, your pastor, and the Lord. I mean, it, it, you don't even need the pastor. Like, you can go so, dunk yourself? No, I didn't say that. You, but you said a very specific person, a pastor. My understanding and my belief is that I could go and baptize you if you were unbaptized right here, right now. Okay. So if we wanted to get in the car and drive to the ocean, I could go and dunk you in the water, and that's a baptism. Okay? Okay. Um, so I don't think it's necessary to wait to do it at your church, to do it with a whole big congregation, and uh, I don't believe it's necessary for your pastor or even an elder in your church to do it. My understanding is that every believer is a priest and can go and minister that, uh, the, can go and minister to people with baptism themselves. And so, as a pastor, I wouldn't even make it my job to baptize people. What I would be teaching is that it's your job to go out and disciple people to the point of needing to be baptized. And then, if they want to get baptized, you go and do it, you know, uh, down at the okay. beach or whatever, right? Like, Again, this is this is just off the cuff, so I'm not 100% sure if I was the pastor of a church exactly no, what I'd like be doing. That. But like, what, I what I think I understand is you're saying, like, go and witness to somebody. If they're starting to hear you out, tell them, well, you, you should really get baptized. And if they come to you and they're like, I, I think I should get baptized. I agree with you. I should get baptized. I want to get baptized. And you're like, all right, sweet. Let's go do it. Like, yes. you're saying it's kind of like that. Okay. That... I, I, I would agree with that. I don't think there's anything unbiblical about that. Like, I don't think it was wrong or sinful, but... Today, if you had just come to Christ, that's what I'd say you should go do. I wouldn't say you have to wait for Dan to go baptize you in front of the whole church. I don't think that's necessary. I just did it in a traditional sense, but you're saying I could have done it in a very untraditional sense, and it would have been just as... I, I, I would have argued that our friend Christian should have gone and just done it. I think it's his job and his that responsibility. That would have been cool, too. Yeah. Like, since we're friends and stuff, that would have been a, a fun exchange. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so. But, you know, again... I, this this ritual isn't saving you, and so I'm not worried that you're not saved because it was done improperly, or, or you know what I mean? Like, there's none of that concern, and so we can do it with a lot of freedom. Whereas the Catholics, there was a priest, I think last year or the year before that, that uh, had said one word, said one word wrong in his, like, baptismal speech that he did for all these babies, and the church went and said, nope, you haven't been baptizing people for the last 20 years. And so the thousands of people that he baptized all potentially have to go now get re-baptized. Oh, you're muted. You're uh, muted. Did you follow up on that? Do you know what the actual, like, um, you know, uh, since that came out, do you know if it in fact was nullified or anything like that? Oh, yeah. His, his baptisms were 100% nullified because he had been using this wrong word. And so... so you that's weird. So the, okay. uh, and so based on Catholic doctrine, there were people that are going to purgatory because that one because word they're was dead wrong. now. There's some that are. Uh, I mean, there could be if they didn't get their baptisms redone. So if you, okay, so if this I don't guy know baptized that, that. Oh, that's wild. If so, if this guy baptized you, and then you got into a car accident, God forbid, like, and then this revelation comes out, the Catholic Church is saying that you went to purgatory because he didn't probably baptize you. 
Yeah, possibly even hell. I'm not 100% sure on the way that the the Catholic doctrine would teach that, but it's Ooh. possibly even hell. So Ooh. it's a it's a big, like, there's a big difference between the way that Catholics practice Christianity and the way that Christians do, okay? Theirs is very much about, like... Unsaved, always saved? There's not Catholics. That, <laughs> no, Catholic, I'm saying that's what, yeah, that's, that's, what we, that's what we believe, yeah. Well, we... We just believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. And so they add on all these other things. So, again, I, I, it probably comes across as me Catholic bashing, but I'm not. It's just what I know the most about because I've, they, they have the, the clearest, easiest to tear down beliefs. Like Pentecostals, there's, some of them are right, some of them are wrong, and there's a broad spectrum. But with the Catholic ultimately, Church. Ultimately, it's, all, it's either steering from biblical, like actual scriptures or not right and that's kind of how you're defining what's right or wrong right exactly and and it's not even about my definition it's it's what is the what what did god intend what was his intent behind writing this to us and and how does god want us to use that knowledge to live our lives i think that's that's the most important question and ultimately what i see in the new testament isn't a god that cares about religion about like uh, he he doesn't care about you dotting your I's and crossing your T's from some religious practice here on earth. What he cares no, about fact, is your faith. Yeah, yeah. He Jesus in the Gospels was challenging the religious elite, like the the people that held the highest office in the religious, you know, Jewish, mm -hmm. you know, sex and stuff like that. But yeah. Well, and and what he did is he came in and and uh, one of the the most important not most important one of the very important symbols that uh, in christ's death that we don't think about as much as we should is when that veil was torn so in Talk the temple that, yeah. yeah in in the in the temple uh that existed in jerusalem at the time that jesus christ was alive there was a an incredibly thick veil that separated um the uh, the whole the the normal area that people could be in in the temple from what they called the holy of holies and so this holy of holies is the holiest place in all of judaism okay it is where god physically sat in between uh the cherubim on the the uh on the ark of the covenant covenant so above the ark of the covenant is what's called the mercy seat and the mercy seat are these two cherubim that uh that form kind of a seat that somebody could sit on. And so the, the belief is that God's what they call his Shekinah glory actually physically inhabited this spot on earth. What does Shekinah mean? I don't even know how to describe that. It, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a Jewish thing, but basically they're saying that while God doesn't have a body, his glory came and inhabited that, area above the mercy seat Jeez, that's like when you think about it in that way that's pretty nuts like yeah that his presence sat in that seat like his presence is so large and powerful that his <laughs> that that's what sat there that's, yeah. oh man so that's that, nuts. well and that that's that's a holy place that's like that's like greater than the burning bush levels of holiness as far as the jews are concerned and and the burning bush was a holy was holy ground to them so what you what you see there is i totally lost what i was talking about man this happens too much but uh yeah so so what we see with the veil being torn is 
the ability for a normal person. Oh, the Holy of Holies and um, yes. what separated. What, yeah. And so, so you'll see... what those two areas were. What was the other area? So the Holy of Holies is where God was at. What's the other area? Is it like the Court of the Gentiles or something? So th there's a lot of different rooms that are in the temple. I don't know them well enough to tell to be able to tell you uh, exactly where, uh, like what room was directly outside of it. But I think it was just like the the normal. Uh, so there was a, a place where they would actually do like sacrifices and oh, okay. burn stuff. And this was a place that normal Jewish men could go. So as a Gentile, we would never go into the place just outside of the Holy of Holies. But as a Jewish man, it's likely that you could be in that space for a sacrifice or some kind of a uh, religious uh, uh, uh reason okay wouldn't wouldn't i be outside of that area too like I, I, I would i be mixed in with the jews or no what do you mean because i'm not jewish if i was so at the you, temple would i be so, mixed in with the jews so if there was a temple standing and the jews oh. were the ones in, in control of it and they were following actual jewish tradition and custom which not all of those are, are necessarily going to happen uh it, you know they will happen eventually. It will be run by Jesus Christ himself. But uh, the next iteration of the temple that, that gets opened up might not. Um, I was like, ah. So, yeah, b basically, uh, yeah, it might not have. What was I, What did I say to you? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah, sorry. Holy of Holies being torn. Yeah, um, okay. So, I'm, so I'm back... destroying your, yeah. your train of thoughts. Don't worry about it. <laughs> It's okay, and I want to answer all of it. But back to the Holy of Holies, when the veil was torn, okay, when that when that that big guard, when that big tapestry was torn, and we're talking thick, like it's that, like that, and that was like material, like 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 cloth, inches right? thick, yeah. Um, so it was torn from the top to the bottom, and it, and and that symbolized the fact that God is now capable of of going in and inhabiting His people in a different way. So because oh. Jesus Christ came and cleansed us of our unrighteousness, it means that we can directly commune with God, whereas before the high priest could only go into the Holy Holies, Holy of Holies once per year, and after he had been especially uh, ritualistically cleansed by sacrifices. So he had to do a bunch of special sacrifices, and then he could only go into the, the Holy of Holies once every year on the day of Yom Kippur. Um, and so the, the, the veil being torn symbolized the fact that we are all now capable of, of communing directly with this Shekinah glory. And I don't remember at all where that, <laughs> oh, you we were talking about denominations at some point back, <laughs> back up the rabbit hole. You're, you're muted still, bro. Sorry, I was basically asking you what we are, like, if we were a denomination. Oh, yes, yes. So, what I would say is that my my belief is that I am a biblical Christian, what I would describe as a biblical I Christian. Would, I would accept that representation as well for myself. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would want to make sure that my denomination is just following scripture, honestly. So, that, that's, that's how I would describe it. Um, there are other people that are in specific denominations that I would say are Christians as well. So I'm not saying you have to describe yourself as a quote, biblical Christian in order to be saved, but I don't agree with a group of Christians enough to say that I'm a Baptist or to say that I'm a uh, Presbyterian or 
any of those other things. Um, but, uh, yeah. So. Um, sorry, there was just noise going on over here. I was just You're uh, good. telling Sky some stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, let's move on. So, this one I'm actually don't know much about. What is a Methodist? So, a Methodist comes from, I believe it is a man named John Wesley. Could be wrong about that. Please fact check me. Um, and he had a method of evangelism that turned into a group called the Methodists. What is, a, so, what is evangelism? Oh, evangelism is spreading the gospel. So going out and telling people yeah, about Jesus Christ. Yeah, method of spreading Christ. the gospel. Okay, so, continue. And, Sorry. And, and so he had, I believe, there, there might have been, a, this might be another denomination that I'm confusing with the Methodists, but I believe the meth, the, that John Wesley... If that's who it was, I think you're right. That name is ringing a bell for Methodists. Yeah, I oh, that think might I be think a Leslie. Right. I mean, look it up now. I need no, to look I it up. I honestly think you're right, but go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, so what it was is, uh, they they uh, yeah. So it was John Wesley, and it was a movement originally within the Church of England. Okay, and but what happened was they wouldn't let him preach in their churches because he wasn't preaching strict Anglican doctrine. He was just preaching the gospel. And so they kicked him out of the churches, and he actually ended up having to go and do his preaching in the fields, on the side of the road, just wherever he could, could yell at somebody on the, you know, passing by, he would be yelling at them the gospel. And so ultimately his method of preaching and his method of, of, of reaching the unsaved became the Methodist Church, separate from the Church of England. It almost sounds like just walking up to people. Uh, it, there, There's more to it than that. I, I don't know what the other parts of the method are, and I'm just describing to you very loosely what I understand. So That's okay. I, I just want everybody to understand that like this is not the definitive, this is what a Methodist is, like, answer. It's This is pretty close to what Methodism is and, and doing my best. Yeah, yeah, we're just trying to broadly cover stuff, and uh, I'm learning a lot too. Like, I didn't know what a method this was. Um, and then moving on, what is a mm -hmm. Lutheran? A Lutheran. So, uh, a lot of people would argue that the that Martin Luther, the man who started the Lutheran Church, uh, kicked off the uh, the Reformation uh, or the um, which is a period in the 1500s where the Catholic Church. Uh, got broken up and people left the Catholic Church to go start what are called Protestant denominations. One of those denominations is the Lutherans. They were started by Martin Luther, who went up to a church in uh, Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to the door. And so a common way of, of posting messages to the community was to go and post things on the church door. Um, the difference between what most people did and what he was doing is he was questioning the Catholic Church and had 95 different points that he believed the Catholic Church was being unbiblical or, or being non... Well, they were in error in. One of which uh, being indulgences. And so in the Catholic Church, an indulgence is when you can do work or pay off your spiritual debts. And so and I, I believe to their defense, I don't think I think they revised away from indulgences themselves. I don't think Catholics, false, uh, false. OK, okay. that is 100 percent false. All right. I tried. So 
Yeah, uh, indulgences still exist in the Catholic Church. Th the difference is it is no longer... Uh, you can no longer pay a specific amount of money to receive one. So you still it's might... Just a dollar. What? It's just a dollar or like... No. Even that. You can't have so, a specific so, amount. So in, an indulgence never was exclusively payment. That was the problem that Luther had with them specifically was the payment for them. But an indulgence is just the church saying that you're absolved of a sin because of an action that you did. And so they have never stopped doing that. Okay. So they will still absolve you of your sin for doing good work. You went and did a cleanup day at your local parish. Your, your priest might be able to give you an, an indulgence for doing that. Uh, back in 20, the early 2010s, the Pope did a trip down to, uh, like Argentina or something. And if you faithfully followed that trip on Twitter and interacted with different people and with the Pope, you could get an indulgence for doing those actions for faithfully following the Pope on, uh, Oh man, no way! Yeah, so I'm, I'm blown away a little bit. <laughs> so that, so that still exists. Like that's the Pope talking about Twitter, okay, and giving out indulgences for Twitter. My, so my. okay. So i I don't have I, I don't have a problem with how silly that is. I think a lot of people were mocking the Pope for how silly it sounds that you can get an indulgence for doing something on Twitter. But what it proves is that indulgences still exist. You just can't go spend, you can't go give your priest a hundred bucks and he gives you an indulgence. That's the only thing that's changed. But potentially, if you've been a lifelong major donor to the Catholic Church, you could get an indulgence basically for that. Even though they won't say directly it's because of the money you spent, They'll say, oh, you get an indulgence for being a, you know, a, a great upstanding person in the church, those sorts of things. Again, I don't know exactly what they give indulgences for. I don't know why they give indulgences. I don't claim to understand that system, and I'm not mocking the system. I just, it's not biblical. It's not necessary from a biblical standpoint, and any, any indulgence whatsoever is sinful, in my opinion, to be handing out and to receive. Because that's a essentially it's now a piece of paper that you're worshiping as the absolution of your sin rather than Jesus Christ's completed work on the cross. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's it's either you're either worshiping that paper or you're worshiping the work that you did. And you're essentially saying that I needed to add work into what Jesus Christ did. So Okay. And so Martin Luther was railing against these indulgences. That was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for him to uh, to kind of create, uh, to, to break off. So originally he wanted to reform the church and to, to change Catholicism into, to steer it back towards Christianity, but ultimately the church was so set in its ways that it, was, it tried to kill him. And so uh, Martin Luther doing this, and the, there were other uh, reformers as well, I think Huss was a reformer, Zwingli, uh, he was a reformer, um, and so there's other people that were trying William to do the Kindale same thing. William Tyndale too, right? Yes, so there's plenty of reformers, he just gets kind of top billing because he started uh, 
Lutheranism and because of how vehemently the Catholic Church opposed him. Um, okay. So, yeah, it, it, he started, the, the Lutherans, you know, he started off a very dark period in Christianity. Well, it didn't start off, but this was another very dark period in dark Christianity. Dark period preceded this. Where, well, th there was a dark period in the spreading of the gospel, but specifically the Catholic Church then started persecuting uh, these these reformers and the people that were following them and ended up murdering about like five million of them, I think. Ooh. So so the Catholic Church murdered about five million Protestants back in the day. So when when they try to say that we believe the same things, no, <laughs> sorry, he didn't kill five million of us, you know, five hundred years ago because we believed the same things. <laughs> It's, uh, okay. <laughs> like that's I don't I don't know what you've changed, but <laughs> we didn't believe the same things then. I don't think we believe them now. But uh, all right. Um, let's move on to Calvinism. Yes. So Calvinism, they believe in a. Uh, they covered that earlier a little bit. I've, I've mentioned Calvinism in different in uh, previous episodes, I believe. But ba the basic belief of a Calvinist is that you are incapable of having faith in Jesus Christ of your own volition. That even Which has that... a lot of implications. Yes. So my belief is that that's completely wrong. Okay. So the, the basic belief that you are incapable of turning to God of your own free will, I believe is completely wrong, but that is the belief of a Calvinist. So they believe that we're so totally corrupt and depraved and evil that we are. Which we are. Well, we are. No, no, we are totally corrupt and depraved and evil. But yes. but they believe we're so totally corrupt and depraved and evil that we are incapable of even uh, having faith in God without him giving it to us as a as a gift. Doesn't. OK. <clears throat> Would they point to any scripture? Would they say that? Um like faith in god is an ability or because the holy spirit works on our hearts to accept i'm trying i'm trying to yeah so, be a, so like advocate for it right so <laughs> they, they so that all of these different things come from well maybe not the catholics as much but even the catholics but but all of these different differences in belief come from different interpretations of scripture some of it's good some of it's bad but we are depraved we are evil we are incapable of saving ourselves the the difference between what i believe that the bible teaches and what they teach is our ability to choose so they believe we have no ability to choose god and that god chose us from the foundations of the world and that there's nothing that we could have done or that we that our faith now didn't affect that decision okay what i believe is that we uh the, the way that it works is we god knew the choice that we would make eventually and then predestined us to be his children based on his knowledge of the events and so god uh, our our whole this all boils down to the way that that the that the new testament talks about how god works and our inability to understand a being that exists outside of time okay so there, there's there's things that took place before the foundations of the world yes and i agree well, like, that because 
Wasn't it so, he created the heavens and the earth, meaning the heavens were created before the earth, and we don't know that like time period? Um, so, is so, that kind of what you're alluding to? No. So that, that that that's close, but uh, what what I'm what I'm saying is that. Oh man, I'm so hot. <laughs> uh, what 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 I'm saying is that. Well, sorry. What 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 was I saying before? <laughs> I just have uh having a day. What were we talking about? Uh, I, to be completely honest, I'm, uh, having a... Oh, having okay, a uh, uh, oh yeah, from, from the foundations of the world, yes, okay. So, what happens is that before even that happened, okay, so before even the heavens and the earth were created, in a time before there was time, okay, God predestined everything to happen the way that it's happening, and, and where... I disagree with Calvinists is I believe that our free will plays a role in what God decided to do. Okay. So my belief and my understanding is that, yeah. Cause the tree is there, right? Yeah. yeah the, the tree was there to make a choice. Yes. Right. Exactly. So, okay. so again, Eve, Eve uh, under a strictly Calvinist, like most hyper Calvinist interpretation, God, predestined eve to eat the apple basically and like that i don't agree with and they may not even uh, say yeah, that because that's almost like saying god tempted you or something you know what i mean like, like that's all, i don't know yeah and so you know like that's my issue with the the hyper uh uh to to go too far with calvinism i i think I like what they say that we're so depraved that we we couldn't have chosen God. I think that to a certain extent is true in the sense that we're that depraved that we we shouldn't be able to, but God in his mercy has allowed us to choose him in my opinion that that's how I read the Bible, right like we we were given the option to choose God because of the work that he did, not that we were forced to choose God because of the work that he did right i don't think I don't think God forced me to be saved. And I think that's kind of what Calvinism teaches. Personally, I've never heard a good explanation of why you would need to go out and do evangelism as a Calvinist. So I would, I would love to hear a Calvinist kind of defend that, because that's a question that I've always had is, so why do you care about going and preaching the gospel if God's already saved who he's going to save? <laughs> you know, and so that to me, there are too many places in the Bible where it tells me to have faith where it tells me to repent of my sins, believe. where it tells me to believe. I don't know how we can, I don't know what those words mean if God did it before time started, okay? Is it me having it, faith? What or is, is it, it what, are yeah. the, what is the point of saying that, those things, if you didn't have a choice in the first place? Like, it, repent and believe the gospel. Well, I sorry, dude, I didn't have the choice. He didn't predestine me, man. Like, you, do you know what I mean? That's kind of what I'm gathering from this. Yeah, and so I think that there I'm are... I'm a vessel of destruction, I'm sorry. Like, uh, Yeah, I was, a, I was a vessel prepared and made to be destroyed. That's the, that's the problem I have with it. Uh, the, the Bible clearly says, you know, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, uh, but the, uh, sorry, um, no, what is John 3.16? For all have sinned, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't say that God so loved the chosen, it doesn't say for God so loved the elect, the, the elect, it says the world. And to me, that means that the world could be saved if they chose to. 
if they that, chose to accept that whoever his free should gift. believe they like should whoever should believe or something isn't that in i think it's like no like, uh, or whoever 3, would believe no i think uh john 316 i thought it was a proposition almost uh, it, no it's whoever believes in him it's it's, it's for god so loved the world that whoever believes in him should, er, that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life So I don't see any room. I don't see any room there that would allow. Yeah, yeah. Whoever. So John three sixteen, the most basic verse that like everybody in the world knows. If you're at all if, have ever heard of the word Christian, uh, it says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." And so. For that's me, a, in essence the gospel right there, right? No, that's that that is the gospel, right? And and so yeah. how can you how can you choose him? You know, how how can you come to believe like so yeah, that that's my opinion there. Uh and so the yeah, Calvinists believe that that you are forced into your salvation before time existed and that you couldn't possibly choose God because you're so totally depraved. Just to kind of wrap that one up. <laughs> okay. How much time do you think we got? Oh, I can go a couple more minutes. What uh, what else you got for it? Arminianism. Arminianism. So that's the basically the opposite. So they don't they what they teach is that you. Uh, I I won't. You know what? I won't even go into what they teach because I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's not what I believe. Uh, it's basically like as far as the other ways you could possibly go. And there's equally number there's an equal number of problems with what they teach, uh, as what a Calvinist teaches, in my opinion. Okay, Seventh Day Adventist. Yes. So, uh, I don't know all of their beliefs. Okay. So they have they, they have, just they hyper focus on the Sabbath day and what day so, like the Jews think. Yeah. So, so that's actually the only part I agree with. <laughs> okay. Um. So their their basic belief, the reason they're called Seventh Day Adventists, I don't know what the Advent part means exactly. Uh, I think it has something to do with Christmas. But I don't know. I don't know what Advent means. Um, but the Seventh Day means that they worship on Saturdays, and so their teaching is that God never changed the Sabbath to Sunday, the way that I got taught growing up in church. So I was taught growing up that the Sabbath day was changed from Saturday to Sunday at some point. That never happened. There was no switch over officially from God that, you know, he therefore decreed that Sunday's the new Sabbath. Uh, now, I think he, in like the epistles, it says like some will view some days holier than others for worship and to each it is, you know what I mean? Like, I so, think the, go for it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there is a verse that says that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't judge someone based on their Sabbaths, right? Uh, uh, which is the verse that you're you're um, quoting, and yeah. I agree with that. I don't think that the day that we come together and worship sh has to be on Saturday. I think the problem for most of Christendom is saying that the Sabbath changed. So the the Sabbath is an institution. Again, it's Saturday. The word Sabbath literally just means seventh day. I think uh, it's the day that God rested in the creation story, and so uh, on that day. Uh, later on and so on and so that's when 
the Sabbath was instituted was from creation. So every single person is required to observe the Sabbath, not just the Jews. The Jews are commanded to remember the Sabbath even in, in Exodus, not that the Sabbath was created in Exodus. And so what I think most other Christians get wrong is that the Sabbath day changed. And so from that basic point, I agree with Seventh-day Adventists. My understanding is they have other beliefs that, that are rather heretical. I'm not going to go into what those are. I don't know, or, or I'm un, unfamiliar with exactly what those are. So outside of their, no, their we worship on Saturday principle, they have other religious beliefs that I think might actually be heretical. I would have to look into what they believe a lot more, though. Okay, all right. Speed round for t the next two. Yeah. All right. Super speedy. Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, heretics. They <laughs> not Christian at all. What do they believe? I have no idea. Not Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Take a little bit more time on this one. Mormons. Mormons. So LDS. Yeah, yeah. Saints. So Mormons believe that there was a man named Joseph Smith who found golden tablets in New York. In the, United, in the United States and New York State. He found golden tablets? Yes. That's what he, he claims? He found golden tablets. He used his seer stone and a top hat to translate those tablets to another person who was standing next to him, writing really down weird. what he was reading from his seer stone and the tablets that he found. Uh, and so he translated the Book of Mormon and a few other uh, extra books of the Bible uh, that he will extra books that he claims should be part of their scriptures. Ooh, so okay. this this beliefs that the the things contained in these tablets that he found claimed that there was a tribe of Israel that made it to the Americas and became the Native Americans. And so instead of being, uh, you know, Native American, they're actually all. Jewish, and that there was a bunch of wars and battles and crazy things that happened in the Americas, and ultimately, I think Jesus came to the Americas at some point. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I, I think that's the case, is that at some Something point... Something about Montana. I, I don't know. It's all, it's all complete heresy. Um, it, it's actually, if you look at it, it's a very similar heresy to Islam. And so there's... Oh, sure. Let, all right. Segue right into Islam. Um, we'll wrap it up with Islam. Yeah, yeah. So Islam, a lot of people don't think of it as kind of a Christian denomination, but in a sense, it sort of is. So they claim that the Torah and that the New Testament are scripture, but they add on the Quran. And it's the same with the Mormons. They're they... not denying the Holy Scriptures? No. The, the Islam does not deny the Old and the New Testament. What? And neither do Mormons. So Mormons... I did not yes. know that. Mm -hmm. So then, then you can only use the the Bible to refute their faith. Then um, you have to tell them, no, this is against Scripture, brother. Like, no, like if the, they if they actually revere it that way. The the problem is that they have explanations and and reasons to believe that oh, you're wrong no. about your interpretations. I, I'm not it saying sounds you... similar to like the, what's going on with Jew, uh, the Jews right now. Yes, like and the so... commentary is so mm -hmm. thick that they they can't get through it. Yeah, yeah, and, and so that Islam is basically a like Christian sect gone as far astray as you possibly could. 
not that they were ever actually explicitly Christian, but like I said, they they acknowledge and use the New Testament as holy scripture. They believe the Jesus New was a prophet. New Testament too? Yeah, they believe that's they, awesome. Yeah, they believe Jesus Christ was a prophet. Awesome. And he was the prophet. Yeah, well, he is awesome. he he is he is a prophet, but also, you know, the son of God in addition. But that they don't believe that part. So that's the that's kind of the the Islam and Mormonism are both very similar in that respect, actually. Though you see radically different uh ideas from their adherents, of the way course. It surfaces and manifests itself, yeah. But basic the basics of what you describe, like they agree with the old and the new testament. They had a prophet that got a special revelation from some the crazy devil place, in, right? Like, yeah. Well, that's what actually happened. Is is it's devils or demons or their own brains that are making up the the heresies that they that they got. So, so that that's uh that's that's you know it's sad. I I pray for all of these people. I have I have friends who are. Uh, Muslim. I have friends who are Mormon. I, I've got friends who are Catholic, and and uh, of the three, the the I, I think ca I think Catholicism is also very similar to Islam and Mormonism in that they add, they don't add a specific book like the Mormons and the and 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 the and the Muslims do, but they add the teachings of the Church itself and the writings of different popes and councils in as equal weight and authority to the Scripture. And so they have a lot of so those three actually have a lot of very similar ideas um between the two. So or between the three. All right, brother. Do you wanna um before we do the end up plugs, do you wanna wrap this up with some prayer? You wanna pray for the people who might possibly be involved with something that might be heretical and you know uh how about we do the plugs and then we'll pray at the very end we'll just end with that let's do it that way yeah so uh my name is ryan thank you for joining us today especially our friend what is it crazed menace yeah, yeah thank you crazed menace so, thank you for stopping by and yeah interacting with us we really appreciate that uh it's we're very happy to have somebody that's following us now <laughs> at least on uh twitch uh, we've got a couple followers on some other platforms, and uh, we just I've been very happy to see kind of how things have been growing and progressing, and it's just been a lot of fun having these conversations with you, Austin. So Thank my name is Ryan, Likewise. and uh, my personal uh, gospel outreach ministry is called As It Is Written. Uh, you should go check that out. I've got a bunch of different videos, uh, different re reactions and shorts over at, on my channel on YouTube and TikTok, uh, as well as uh yeah so that's what i got uh austin um again my name is austin you can find me here on faithful dialogues and i'm also a co-founder of apostles attic which is a christ-centered clothing line that will just has different designs right now you can go to apostlesattic.com the website is officially up and i've got this shirt right here that says jesus paid it all all to him i owe just very simple designs like that Amen. and yeah so that's um that's what I got going. All right. So I will uh, pray to take us on out. All right. So, Lord, uh, I praise you and I thank you for giving us the opportunity to spread your word and, and the good news of, of your death and resurrection and, and ultimate ascension to heaven, to the, the internet. I, I pray that you help us to reach those who you have for us to reach and, and that we wake up those people who might be living, uh, in those organizations that are, are practicing heresies. And I just pray that you uh, work in them and, and bring them to a faith and a knowledge and understanding of who you are, God. 
Uh, I pray that you just be with Austin and myself as we go through our week and, and just bless us and that you bless everybody that's listening and, and just help them to understand who you are and to grow in their knowledge and understanding of you. Uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Amen. You're welcome. I hope you have a great week. And we're going to sign off. So goodbye. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening.